Nadine, it's brilliant to have you here in the basement of Brownswood. Being a fan for ages, it's great to see that there's a lot of light on you at the moment. You're coming here to the UK to do some shows. Hmm. So, how are you feeling? Well, uh, I'm a little, I'm a little, I don't think nonplussed is the right word, but I'm a little baffled by all the activity, actually. It's great to be here, and I'm, I've, I've been treated really most well by everybody that I've come in contact with. The shows have gone well. My throat seems to have held up right. for the most part. I don't write easy songs. You know, I don't like write those, you know, I'm in, I'm in my speaking voice and it's really easy. And even if I'm, I've had a horrible night, I can still make all the notes. No, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, my, mine is a little bit of a high wire act. And, you know, people that know me well are kind of like, oh, is he going to make it? Oh, yes, he or he, or, oh, oh God, <laughs> too bad he didn't, you know. So I, I put my throat through a lot. And you're doing it completely solo? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, strangely enough, um, it's been, ever, the first show was raucous, and we were all shocked, and not, none of us anticipating that it would be anything like that. Um, it's worked out really well. And I thought, I didn't think I had any voice when I played in Dublin, but, you know, miraculously, I managed to find some with the help of some Guinness, of course, and the, all the cures were alcohol-based, that the staff was saying, oh, yeah, you know, we can fix you up. <laughs> Drink this, combine this. But it was all alcohol. But anyway, it was great. Still worked out great. When you first started your singing career, your composing career, your performing career, were you... In a band, or did you start off? I start well. I started playing in in bands when I was in high school, and I started writing when I was in actually in junior high school. But it was that kind of glib, but without any real depth. You know, words put together with some degree of complexity, but no real heart to it. So I had to, uh, I had to descend <laughs> into the depths to come up with. Um, something a little bit more significant, and I played electric guitar for twelve years before I ever played acoustic. So I'm, I'm, you know, and they're just they're they're not the same instrument. They're two completely different entities. But yeah, I mean, the, the acoustic guitar is great because it's so percussive and there's so much rhythm involved. And I just sort of moved a lot of my electric sensibilities over and added some acoustic ones to it. So yeah, I mean, hard to count on other people to help you write everything. But after I, uh, I took a year of classical guitar, and that really that 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 gave me a tremendous sense of economy. So I could, you know, I sort of started cobbling together the relationship between my voice and my instrument. And then, ironically, came to uh, drove a Land Rover from Los Angeles to New York, put it on the QE2, came to uh, uh, Southampton in a uh, left-hand drive. Land River with huge tires on it, and wound up in Dave Mason's living room writing something on his floor. So that was really the the, the first song was the I, on the first album was called On and On, and that was literally between Los Angeles and New York. So that was I would have to say that Fred Node, yet another Englishman, was responsible for my you know kind of lifting me into another place.
Dave Mason, who was was he in traffic at the time? I don't know if th- that he was in traffic. He was coming off an extremely successful solo album, you know, with Feeling All Right and all that great stuff on it. And, you know, Dave kind of goes with it. So he just said, hey, you want to join a band? So it was him and me and Cass Elliott, arguably. It was really quite a lovely blend. We were all, you know, excited. and But, you know, I mean, my parents didn't want me to necessarily put myself in the wrong hands. And his management seemed a little shaky to, shaky to me. So I regretfully departed and then wound up on asylum. Dave Geffen must have heard you somewhere, or how did that happen? I think I think David. Oh God, this is this is difficult territory. Um, <clears throat> I think Jackson and I were really good friends at that point because we, you know, we'd been to Paxton Lodge and we'd done all that, and we were, you know, we were both relatively poor and enjoyed each other's company. I really think that Jackson kind of pulled me into asylum with him. What a time! Yeah, it was pretty crazy. I have to say. Now, you look back at it and you try and, you know, people say, well, so what was it like? I don't even know what it was like. And I was there, not because I was having too much fun, but just because you can't separate yourself from the zeitgeist. You're, you're, you're in it. And so <clears throat> when you look back at it, it's just kind of hard for you to imagine <laughs> as well. But there was, there, it, there was a lot of talent, you know, and, and people were really, you know, there's a lot of excitement. I mean, the cynicism didn't come till later, you know. But uh, yeah, it was for a musician. It was a really great time to be alive. But David Geffen must have been. I mean, he was somebody who made these things happen. And well, I didn't fall within his. I wasn't really. My sensibilities have all been much more. Have been much more about New York. I was already an accomplished player by the time I went to Asylum. So, and David was sort of you know uh, licking his wounds after the Laura Nero thing. And I, I know you know that story. So, and, and he loved Jackson. And, you know, I mean, he was a, a gay man with a stable full of attractive young men, you know, hoop de doo So um, I really kind of fell out of, you know, I, my parents always told me that, you know, somebody should at least meet you halfway. And I was quite prideful and did not take direction well. So, you know, we came, we can't, you know, we were we were kind of at each other a little bit. And, you know, David made a lot of really big promises like, oh, it's just a handshake. You can get out of the contract whenever you want. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, we're all doing this great. We're all just friends. And it wasn't really that. I mean, David assembled a group of people based on his perception of their value, which was actually pretty accurate. And then, you know, traded us in for a, a, an interesting, a more interesting job in the, in the entertainment business, namely film and certainly something that promised a much higher degree of return than because none of us were famous at that point and you know of course the eagles did well and Joni mitchell was she famous by then already <clears throat> i think she yeah i think she was beginning she was sort of beginning to become well yeah she was she hadn't gotten into her whole jazz thing she became quite powerful after she well she was always powerful you know she's always driven right i mean even now you read articles about her she's still as my Uncle Tim would say, rougher than a stucco bathtub, you know. Yeah. Are you, are you still in contact with that era of musicians? I basically have... I, the only friend that emerged from that whole period of time was Jackson. And he and I were friends before it happened, and our friendship is still quite strong, even though we don't see each other socially that much. The rest of them, not so much. Hamish Stewart, that's somebody who I sort of noticed that you had an association with, and it's a British connection with Average White Band. Yes. Is that still connected? Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I believe we're going to go to Kent tomorrow to visit the the great man in his lair. My relationship with him came from his first visit to Los Angeles, and AWB played at the Troubadour. I'm sure you've been to Los Angeles, so you, you know what I'm talking about, but right next to Doheny, or Doheny, if you're from Dublin is the Troubadour and then Dan Tana. So we would just, <clears throat> that was kind of the cycle. We would just cycle between those two places and, you know, do naughty things and, and try and get in trouble and stuff like that. When AWB came to play at the Troubadour, they really they really set the town on its ear. They played so well and they sang so well at the same time. And they had their original drummer who was absolutely wonderful and who unfortunately died during that visit, uh, when he went, he, he went to a party and was given something that he didn't really have any understanding 
was as dangerous as it was. And um, he died in his sleep. His wife found him the following morning. So I think, I believe he and Hamish were really, really, really close. So while you don't replace somebody like that, we sort of, you know, we became good friends. And the first thing we ever tried to write, when his throat, I mean, he, he had polyps, couldn't sing, so he would write everything on a piece of paper. And we had a girlfriend in common. I mean, we both knew the same girl, and she sort of, you know, brought us together. And, and then we decided, well, let's write something. And so we wrote A Love of Your Own. It was the first thing we ever wrote. The second thing was, what you going to do for me? And then we were terrified, so we, we abandoned that idea for years and years and years and really haven't written anything since. Till 
two absolute classic <laughs> tracks right congratulations <laughs> what you're going to do for me I mean we've got to talk about that one because that is one of my favourite songs by Chaka Khan and I didn't realise again it's it's you, you pen that well it's but it's kind of both it was it was certainly both of us but you know I mean yeah I I uh that was yeah it was really fun Hamish and I get along quite well and I have tremendous respect for him he's one of the best natural musicians I know for sure you know just one of those people who's got the gift you know listening back to your your career musically from the first self-titled album it was what would you have described that as musically speaking I mean you can see the connection with Jackson Brown and with the Eagles and I think it was a little bit folkier but I think there was also you know there was a kind of there, there was a bit of a groove underpinning too so those sensibilities were starting to make themselves known. And of course, you know, we were all in, in, in a healthy state of competition in really the best sense, you know, that you would play something and somebody would go, damn, and then they would run home and try and outdo you, which just did every, was great for everything. So I kind of, when the second album came along, I was no longer on Asylum. I left Asylum amid some acrimony. And as it turns out, when I was going through the papers recently, not without basis, you know, double billing and, you know, some chicanery that I would like to believe we could have done without. So they're calling it Yacht Rock. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you love that term. From, oh, Yacht Rock? Oh, yeah. God. How does that feel? Um, well, I don't know. I, I'm sure it's in the spirit of, it's basically a loving reference. It's not, you know... <laughs> you know, the yeah. pathetic, shallow, meaningless. What would you call it if you had described the sounds and the sort of, you know, where it fits in the music I world? Have a, I have a tough time with that. And the reason I have a tough time with it is because my, um, my uh, funk acoustic guitar stuff is pretty unusual. There aren't really a lot of people that are doing that. So I don't really know what to say about that. But what I tried to do, and you know, sometimes successfully and sometimes not, is to marry some of the sensibilities of the pure songwriting uh, instinct of the folk period and certainly the early days of Asylum with kind of a, uh, a lascivious underpinning, you know, that to me the idea of... of, of uh, great rhythms and and uh, sophisticated changes combined with something that you know that you might not have thought of yourself said in a way that bespeaks at least a modest education of some sort that that's really interesting to me to me the most interesting combination of things uh, i think the only thing i used to like about country and western music was the stories that they told quite like that but I found the changes woefully predictable. Now the stories aren't even good. But um, I think to tell a great story over a great groove is, to me, that's, that's, it just gets no better than that. It, for this kind of thing. In answer to your question, I don't even know how to describe it. Steve Cropper said to me, you know, he says, your albums sound like medleys. Like, everything's different, and it's like you, you compile it from a bunch of different records. And he said, I don't even really know what to call it so i guess yacht rock is as good as anything else well i think that's quite uh, yeah it's very british i'm sure that's <laughs> that's a homemade thing um, in the uk but you know obviously there's a bigger area which is aor there's right. the blue-eyed soul thing but with you what i think is really interesting is the whole sort of recording process of it as well it feels right. to me like it feels like you really spent time capturing all those elements beautifully recorded fantastic arrangements great songs i mean it's an awful lot of process going on there <laughs> yeah right i mean you can't knock that one out in a couple of days no but it's i mean it's also it's also really great fun i i made this th this record took me a re quite a while and um this the, is the latest album the darkness beyond the fire yeah yeah it took me much longer than it would have if i'd been with a bunch of friends doing it it would have probably been half the time or less but you know, I'd be alone in my studio. And there'd be, you know, I'd have there be, I'd have there be a candle or something, and I'd be just listening to this stuff in the middle of the night, really just thinking, God, it was such a. That part of it was my favorite part. Being in the studio, recording with your friends, staggering out at dawn with something that you felt really, really good about, and you were curious to see if it was going to do well. And I, you know, now it's just one, you know, one old guy and a bunch of digital stuff. 
Well, not all digital, but um, yeah, I loved that process. I loved that process. And I know a lot of people that hate being in the studio, hate it, go through it because they have to do that to get the product to do the thing. But I think it's just wonderful, especially the stuff that occurs spontaneously that you never figured would happen. It's just in those that music business is filled with those little odd, you know, turnings of event that that makes something more than anybody present could have imagined it might be. So, yeah. So to prove my love, right, this is that song. That's how I got into you, right? Because I was a kid growing up in London and a few jazz funk soul DJs were playing disco kind of guys were playing that's the music I seen that I was following and suddenly this record appeared called to prove my love I think it was a DJ called Robbie Vincent that was playing it here in the UK a lot and uh, there was also a scene at the time I think it was probably from the Japanese edition of the record because right. I know that there was a big sort of curiosity and movement for importing Japanese jazz fusion records right odd and they were super expensive and i think that it was uh import of to prove my love that was what got on the radio and then it went from there is that how they draw they draw well cbs dropped me at that point i mean you know i was off the label and they rushed me into the studio to, to make the prone album and i prefer to kind of linger over it for a moment as you've probably guessed to try and make sure that everything i can live with what i've done so um it to prove my love was really uh i'm sure you know the story about the about you know it being shipped without the um with with it as a tv mix you know about that tell me about it well i was in the studio and i was just playing it by myself because i was tootling around with it cropper goes what is that so i said i I played the whole thing and even the chorus all that he said oh my god let's do that so then we all turned our attention toward that and we put together the track then he got on the phone called a bunch of horn players who came down and we, you know, we did all kinds of naughty things that were derogatory for that particular era. Stayed up all night. The horn players went were just absolutely crazy about it because it was a really good track. And I didn't really think about lyrics per se. I just because the track was so new, so all I really had in it was stuff like, "Tell me, tell me." That's you know that was it. Those were my big lyrics. To prove my love, right? So and we and we were just all hopping around the control room and loving all that, staggering out into the dawn. Well, they dropped me at CBS, and the album went out. I sang another vocal to it, and I wrote some lyrics just because I thought, well, you, you should probably, I should probably have some sort of lyrical content to give people something to you know, focus on. But I didn't really think about much about it, and I have British friends who've never heard the lyrics to the original lead vocal. I always kind of liked it without the vocal. I thought that was, and I think that's what made the big difference in England was that here you've got this track, and you know. There's no vocal kind of elbowing its way into your consciousness. It's just all sinewy groove stuff. So I think people got really, were, intri- were intrigued by the possibility, shall we say. And I, you know, at that point, if I'd, kn- if I'd only known, I would have been on a plane with the usual suspects. But I had no idea that that was happening at all. It's, you know, pre-internet and all the rest of it.
So let me get this one right. So you you've been dro- you, you're making a record, but you've been dropped. Have you been dropped? No, you're still no, making no, a record. No, we got dropped after we finished the record. Okay, so they never released it in America? No. So you made this record, they listened to it and went, no, no, we're not going to release that. And then CBS Japan got it? And I think they were trying to, well, I mean, you know, they're trying to recoup everything. So I'm, I'm, they gave it to the, the Japanese and, and then, that, then it got to England and then and here we are, you know, so. So it went all the way around the world. Well, and, and apparently quite a few times in the last 20 or 40 years. I know? think you need to say thank you to a few of those <laughs> Brit funk DJs of the time. Robbie Vincent, for sure, because he had a huge influence. And I, I remember him, he just hammered that record. Oh, that's great. And then it eventually came out. Was that, would that have been your first crossover hit, Global? Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, Get It Up For Love kind of has, has been more this go-around. Yeah. As a DJ, recently, in the last few months, when I've <coughs> hit a kind of cul-de-sac with right. where I'm going as a DJ, Get Up For Love, Ned Dahini's version, with that intro, it just restabilizes the whole night. And oh, that's it, great. It starts again from there. It's been, that's great. Yeah, it's been fantastic. Yeah, I love that. But when you recorded it, what was the connection between you recording it and then it becoming a Tata Vega hit? Well, oh God, it was so funny. If you listen to the demo on the Numero group, it's really fast. I'm playing it at, really, at a really high rate of speed. And originally, Glenn Fry, you know, he, he really liked that tune. And he said, well, we should write that together. But, you know, our paths really weren't crossing. I was doing one thing and another. So I just did that. And, of course, the Get It Up For Love part could either be construed as as broad good-natured humor or just kind of cheesy exploitation however you want to look at it david gavin was certainly shocked the first time i played it for him at the troubadour his head you know i think is if it weren't if it wasn't securely attached it would have flown off into the aisle you know <laughs> obviously it was a topic that was dear to his heart but and you know actually really kind of dear to all our hearts as it all turns out Struggle 
And I was banned in Boston, you know, which is great. I mean, when I, you know, that was that was it was a high point of. It was of, banned in Boston. It was banned in Boston, yes, sir. I was so touched <laughs> by that. I thought you've gone to so much trouble, uh, you poor lonely people. But um, it's a live vocal, top to bottom. I doubled it, but it's a live vocal. So that was. On your second album, Get Out for yeah. Life. But the versions on the Numero reissue is is different to the version on Hot It's Candy. the very first demo I did for for Warner Chapel. Um, Artie Wayne sent me down to some little studio, and I just popped on the other parts, and there's one horrendous clam at the very end, which you can kind of hear. And when did Tata Vega... I, Tata Vega called me on the phone, and she is a Christian. And um, <laughs> she... Uh, uh, how much leeway do I have in terms of what I can say on your... <laughs> as far as you want to go. <laughs> okay. It's all good, Ned. Okay. She was having a little trouble with trouble with the Get It Up For Love part. Because she, as she referred to it, she said, you know, I just want to make sure this isn't all about push in the bush, you know? Which, you know, it's kind of... <laughs> you know, and then back on, back on the phone again. I said, well, look, actually, Tata, it's like this. It's really a question of of uh, uh, summoning one's resources. There are some things in life that never change, and this is one of those things. It's part of the wonderful baggage that we find ourselves carrying for most of our lives and eventually have to let go of. And so, to me, it's it's about the things in life that don't change, and it's about really summoning your resources on any level. And she went, ah, oh, great, okay. But she... <laughs> she <laughs> Right, I could sell cars, you know. But anyway, she, uh, yeah, she was much relieved to find out that it wasn't just some kind of horrible groveling hump tune. Little did we know that the uh, that that was going to be coming in spades. And it was a big, big song for her. I mean, this and she was... did, and she sang it beautifully. Yeah, are you I, happy with that? Oh, I think it's, I think it's so far. I think it's the best version that's been done. But, uh, yeah, there were a lot of versions of that tune. A lot of people heard it, but couldn't really make it happen. To me, I always thought, wouldn't it be great to have some beautiful, supremely talented woman throwing that in everybody's face? I thought that would just be the greatest thing on earth. But it never really happened. Tata was the closest. It's a tricky situation. Hard to say just what the outcome will be. If you solve the riddle, you can save it yourself. A chase love shadow till the river's done gold. And hey, hey, man. Get it up, get it up for love. Oh. Hey, hey, man. Get it up, get it up for love. 
I want to ask you about Charles Lloyd because that's a slightly <sighs> obscure yeah. um, connection. Very obscure. I was really young at that point. I was 18, maybe 19. And he really wanted, he wanted me to, uh, it might have been 20. And there was a friend of mine, uh, Kenny Jenkins, who's playing bass with him. Kenny said, well, you should come down and, you know, and, and uh, you know, meet Charles. So I did that. And, and then they, they asked me to play some stuff. And, I, you know, musically, I'm basically illiterate. All my stuff is, is pure instinct. I know quite a bit about chords at this point because I've been <laughs> I've been playing them for most of my life, but I'm not really classically trained except for one year of classical guitar with Fred Node. So if you, you know, if you want musical theory, you should talk to somebody that knows about it, and it isn't me. So I played with Charles, and Charles said, "Well, gee, you know, maybe you, sh you should join the band." And I, my stuff was more at that point about sonics. It was about you know using the volume pedal to take the attack off a note, so you could just kind of feed it in all these things are so common now nobody would even bat an eyelash but and I think Charles liked the idea that I was young and you know I was a, I was a good looking kid and he thought that that would be a nice make him appear to be more modern because he was sort of uh, quietly whispering his way through through lyrics and vocals that he really didn't have the candle power to sing he certainly had the musical background he just didn't have the throat for it so my presence there was, I think, kind of a sort of an homage to an era that he felt that hopefully he would be uh, part of in some way. Like Miles and, you know, Miles hiring all these young people and, you know, so as soon as somebody would achieve a certain stature, you know, and Miles would grab them and, you know, include them and, and you know, try and keep it all going. And I think Charles, this is kind of Charles's version of that. Did you record with him? Mm-hmm. So which albums? It was an album, kind of a completely forgettable piece called called Moon Man. Shortly after that, I did what I, apparently I always do, which is, if you're driving a Ferrari, why can't you pay us? You know, it's just, <laughs> that's my, sort of my job, you know. Doesn't anybody think it's funny that the record company and the management are the same? You're driving a Ferrari, why don't you pay us? And he, he got really absolutely furious so i i left the i left the band at that time but i learned great things i learned how to play out of time in other words to just simply be with other people and play at the same time but not in time obscure I, that's great i'm gonna go and look for that record well most of what you most of what you get from me is is kind of texture and things like mm. that and we at a certain point we went up to mcneil island federal penitentiary which i believe is in washington and in those days, it was mainly for political prisoners and people that had been caught, caught with large amounts of drugs. And so we went to play McNeil Island Federal Penitentiary. And my God, I'm a, you know, a 20-year-old kid. And we, you know, trudging in there with my clear plastic guitar, you know, that uh, the Dan Armstrong one. You know, there I was amidst the uh, hard cases and the not so hard cases. And there are quite a few people knew Charles from when, you know, there's one guy was hollering at him from the cell block. Hey, remember Rosewood? Well, that's where he went to school when he was in high school. I'm a friend of his up there in a cage, you know. Great experience. That was a great experience. So suddenly there's a bunch of reissues and a new album. So you've got the <coughs> reissue of Hard Candy. You've got the Numero Group double album which features a bunch of demos and stuff then there's this latest album that you recorded the darkness beyond the fire how does it feel to be so under the spotlight so well not under the spotlight but to be getting so much attention was it something that you did you feel like okay I've, <coughs> i want to get back out there did you did you make your well sure i mean no, listen going out and playing is wonderful i mean you know here i am having this interview with you right that wouldn't have happened but was that something that you didn't really want for a while and then you sort of well you know it, it, it the business can be pretty mean you know i mean if you have if you know uh, uh it's perilous especially to your sense of fair play and and purpose and all the rest of it and i you know there was i went through some really rough times after my period of time with asylum and and uh and then subsequently cbs and all that and and you know said goodbye to a few people who some of whom Permanently, I mean, some died, some... I just couldn't see the point in trying to keep relationships mm. like that alive. But, you know, this is something I started when I was really small. I mean, I was six or seven years old, and 
It's you know, a picture of you with Armour Ertigan. <laughs> Hang on, how did that happen? My fr- my parents were friends with... Uh, uh, my mother had a high school friend named Camille. And she went out... She was married to a Turkish gentleman named Nazem Kalkavan. And he was friends with the Erdogans. So the Ur- Erdogans became friends with my parents. And your parents... Sorry to take it to there. But when, okay. when I read... When I go down to Heaney Drive, that's your family? Yes. Somehow? That is correct. That's wow. my great-grandfather. Amazing. So, I mean, at one point, my mother calls me up and she said, well, Amma was in town. I said, oh, great. She said, yeah, we had lunch with uh, him and that Mick Yeager person. <laughs> so there's Amit having lunch with my parents with Mick Jagger and Jerry Hall at some restaurant in town. My mother said, she, uh, she looked like your last girlfriend, only prettier. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> Appreciate that. Was that a, a wait for you, do you think, this... this- family line or was it it's it it was two things it it it's a place where you're going to get a fair shake i think a lot a lot of people feel that way about their families some sadly no but you know i think when when you become uh there's always a danger in this culture of being objectified if you're incredibly stupid or incredibly unattractive or incredibly attractive and incredibly smart the tendency is to objectify people, to objectify races, to objectify genders. And, you know, when a family, when somebody like my great-grandfather, who has a, 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 world, a, a worldwide win of that scale, floats into the public eye, you find yourself getting driven together simply because people, people's fantasies are too, too unwieldy to actually be around. I used to have, I've kind of got this from an old girlfriend of mine who used to be a model, and she said, uh, you know, so I can tell, you know, if I'm with a guy, you know, he'll look at me, and as soon as I see his eyes glaze over, I know we're done, because at that point I could be anybody. And so I think, you know, in a family situation, you tend to circle the wagons, and we went through a lot of stuff. I mean, my great-grandfather was... um, uh, went through a lengthy trial about Navy oil lands, and they call it the Teapot Dome scandal, but it's actually the Elk Hills scandal. And and uh, there's a book about my great grandfather that was really quite good. And the only one that my family ever, well, my all my aunt, my aunt and my uncles were still living. The only one that they actually sanctioned. And you know, he won big and he lost big. His only son, my namesake, his only son, Ned Doheny, was killed at, at a rather large mansion in Beverly Hills. And nobody, we will never know exactly what happened. All we know is that there was a room with two, two dead men in it and no explanation as to who killed who or, you know, and that, and that broke his heart. So the general consensus is that when my great-grandfather got to the end of his, his road, he was, you know, he was, he was broken in some way. And I think um, so interesting for a, a man of his strength because you're talking about somebody who was searching for oil in Mexico. I mean, you're sleeping with a sidearm in jungles infested with jaguars and snakes. And, you know, when he first got back to the, you know, he would get back home to, he'd come back to his house. He, he had to sleep on the floor because it was, it, it was more earth-like. And he was really unaccustomed to seeing roofs over his head. And he was, you know, in many ways, he was a, he was a real stand-up character. And, and I think he was unfortunately portrayed. Most historians will say, oh, yeah, he did it. He was guilty, that son of a bitch. But a lot of documents that were unearthed um, after, you know, certain statute of limitations seem to prove that perhaps, you know, his use of Navy oil lands is actually part of a contract, a bid that he made to, to handle the oil refineries in Pearl Harbor, World War II before the Japanese attacked it. And it was actually kind of instrumental in helping the fleet get back on its feet again. So, you know, it, it's sort of, it's one of those things where um, uh, so uh, aggressive and quick to to condemn you and put you down. And if there's any information to the contrary later, that's not nearly as interesting. So they'll just leave you with the albatross they hung about your neck. So, Yeah you tend to stay in your family because they understand your situation. And, you know, the, the David Geffens of the world, and, and there are a lot of people who, who, for whom it's been quite difficult. 
I mean, I mean, I'm, I mean, it's ludicrous for me to even say that, but people are struggling perhaps now as, uh, you know, more than ever. The, my country is not in particularly good shape. And, you know, people are really trying to, to, to scratch out some sort of stability for themselves. And it's not easy, you know. So, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, on the one hand, I'm, I'm quite proud of my family because um, they're a great bunch of characters, and as, as these gentlemen will tell you, the stories just never stop. I mean, half of this tour has really been, half of this tour has really been half his music and half her stories. And I'd never thought it, I'd be, I never thought that would be necessarily how it was going to go. But invariably people come up to me after the shows and go, God, the stories, you know, they want me to, and they want me to do more of that. So, you know, storytelling with music, storytelling without music. No. It's a complete thing. Well, thank you very much. Pleasure. For me. Absolutely. Sin.